Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and I'm just going to jump right into it this week. There's not much need for an introduction. Our guest is Ricky Fowler, one of the most recognizable names in all of golf for the last decade. And this is very much why we started this podcast in the first place. We wanted to sit down with the best players in the world and pick their brain. And I can't tell you how much we've been enjoying this for the last few weeks because we're on a bit of a heater with the quality of guests that we've had. And we weren't even going to release this one with Ricky so soon, but we finally got news that there's some live golf that's going to be on TV. Uh, he and Matt Wolf are teaming up against Rory and DJ on May 17th. So we're pumped up for that and we felt it was pretty topical and that we could release this now. But I hope that you've caught up on the last few guests that we've had. Daniel Berger, Jimmy Walker, Matt Wallace, Kevin Chappell, Patrick Cantley, Xander Shoffley, just to name a few. And if you're not already subscribed, uh, you need to do so because we've got a bunch more big guests already in the can, ready to be released in the next few weeks. Justin Thomas, Webb Simpson, Jordan Spieth, Adam Scott, Eddie Pepperell. So go hit the subscribe button, share this with somebody who's going to benefit, and please enjoy episode 65 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Ricky Fowler. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback that's custom to your swing. Learn to reinforce your lessons with drills that you can do at home, even while we're stuck inside. The Total Golf Trainer 3.0 kit is an all-in-one training kit for beginners all the way to professionals. We use it daily to solve all sorts of issues at Altus. The guys at TGT have provided a list of the most common ailments that the 3.0 kit can help solve. So if any of these sound familiar, you certainly need to check it out. If you've got club face issues, whether that be extremely open or closed, takeaway issues, especially one that gets inside early. If you're too laid off or across the line at the top of the backswing, it can help with battling loss of width or if you're trying to shorten your backswing. And of course, the dreaded over the top, casting, early release, loss of posture, early extension, flipping, all those things the 3.0 kit can help you solve. It's the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing. With the easy to use adjustable training rods, you may increase and decrease the difficulty for use by any level of golfer, from juniors to beginners to advanced pros. Get instant feedback with Total Golf Trainer. It's all you need to learn your process and own your swing. To learn more and watch the videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at TotalGolfTrain. So we've got a bit of an argument to settle first, and this isn't, doesn't pertain to the podcast. You know, we played golf today with Jordan, uh, one of our key members at Trinity Forest, and Corey had three missteps. I hit the cycle. I had a top, I had a shank, and I putted off the green once, and we were just sitting and having a conversation of what's like, what's the worst? Especially I don't like to do that in front of Jordan. You know what I mean? I'm a coach. I'm supposed to have some kind of expertise here, and so I'm trying to figure out which of those three is the worst. Do you have an opinion? And it was a it was a cold top. I mean, it was three wood into a par five cold top. Well, that's not terrible because I mean, <laughs> you you have you have I made par. Yeah, see, exactly. You have time to like kind of make up for it. Yeah, I remember. I think it was first round U.S. Amateur at Pinehurst. First hole, I wanted to try belly putter and felt like I'd been putting nice with it, especially inside twenty to thirty feet, and then up closer up, obviously. Got to the first hole, I hit it on the front of the green and had about 60 feet, pin was in the back, and I putted it off the back down a 30-foot <laughs> hill. Failed experiment right there. So, yeah, it, it didn't make it very far. I had to stick it out for that round, but I would say putting it off the green depends on the situation because a place like Augusta, a place like Seminole, 
there's certain places that greens are a little crazy and it, it happens a lot easier. So I guess it depends on the situation. You know, if you top it in the water, shank it OB. I did shoot. I did that last year in Mexico. I shanked a pitching wedge out of the rough out of bounds and then <laughs> dropped it from shoulder height and got another penalty. Yeah. That makes me feel a little You're bit making better. making him feel so much yeah, better. This podcast is after a raging start. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Seminole there and we have to thank you because for a long time, we didn't know when the next shot at having some live golf to watch is, especially on a golf course like Seminole. So can you like give us an idea of how that came about and what we should expect that to look like? Well, I th- I, the course is going to be closed uh, starting May 10th. Seminole typically closes through the summer. And so for this to be able to happen the, the weekend after they close is, is going to be pretty cool. It's really going to be the four of us guys out there, obviously cameras and the camera crew, which that's going to be as light as possible. I think some some people will be on course commentating. There'll be some off-site, some guys at home that'll be commentating and involved so that there's enough people talking and live but it's a special place i mean it's literally i mean it's on the beach obviously if anyone's either been there or seen pictures and it's on a square slash rectangle piece of property um, but the way that it's designed using the the dunes uh, close by there not really any hole goes the same direction so you're you're always kind of you know right where the wind's at because you're on the ocean. There's a big American flag in the northwest corner of property, but you're always turning back and forth. And I mean, it's very rare for the wind to blow less than 10 miles an hour there. So that is a place where if they put some pins in the right spots, uh, you may see one or more than <laughs> a couple of us put it off the green. There you go. There you go, Corey. Now, now, how did it come to pass? Did you and Matt kind of converse and say, Two OSU boys, let's just take on the best that, uh, or, or the, any comers for that matter. Uh, it really came from TaylorMade. All of us, are, the four of us are TaylorMade guys in one way, shape, or form. And they were, I guess, from what I had heard from, from David Abeles, our, our CEO and president, uh, he said they had had this kind of concept a, a while back and just wasn't really fitting, wasn't necessarily, they didn't want to you know, spend the time to really do it and just didn't really fit. But when this kind of pandemic hit and then we were able to kind of present this or, or they were able to present it. It was just a cool, you know, match to be able to go do uh, with four Taylor made guys. So that's really how it came about. And then to come to find out a couple of weeks later after I, everyone committed to, to playing the match that the, then we found out that the tiger and Phil Peyton and Brady match was going to be moved up. So, you know, we've got, we're playing our match, I guess about a week and a half from now, and then Tiger and the boys are going to play uh, down here as well the the following weekend. And what's the ramp up going to look like for you in the next week and a half to make sure you're in tip top shape? After players, I played a little bit that that next week, and then shut it down for pretty much a whole month. So it was nice to actually get into a routine, cook at home, work out at home, uh, which is very rare for guys that play on tour right on. Uh, to get more than a, a week or two at home. So that was actually a, a cool time to just shut it down, actually have a little bit of an off season. And then I started playing a couple courses have been open the whole time. Medalist is one of them. And so the last two and a half or three weeks, I've been going up to medalist, not every day, but you know, at least a few days through the week playing a little bit, played a bit with JT, played a couple of times with tiger played today with Wolf. He just got back into town so 
we'll be playing, playing some matches. I think we got a little game set up tomorrow. That's usually our normal prep for getting ready for a tournament or uh, a big match. As we've kind of been in the, the situation where we miss golf for the first time in a long time and haven't been able to, to have it, at least in the way that we're used to it, Cameron and I have had a conversation where most guys fall somewhere on a spectrum as far as the clients that we coach, where on one side of the spectrum, they just love golf so much and they just miss getting better at golf and playing. And then there's players on the other side of the spectrum where they just love competition and they really miss being out there and competing against others. I think of like Brooks Kepka being some, somewhere on that extreme of the, of the spectrum. Where do you feel like you have fallen now that you've been away from golf here for uh, maybe six weeks or so as on that spectrum? I think I kind of tick all the categories. Um, <laughs> I love to play, but I also want to play to the best of my abilities. And I don't want to be out there hitting you know, bad golf shots or not being able to hold a cut into a right to left wind or whatever it may be. So part of it, you know, starting to work with Tillery this last year, that month that I had where I really took time off, it wasn't that I wasn't working on golf. I was spending a lot of time in the gym and using time after lifting to work on some drills in the gym with weight to help try and work on some different sequencing and pattern to get a better sequencing. Um, so when I got back to swinging and so I've been working on some things the last few weeks and trying to use this time wisely, not just sit on the couch and watch movies. There has been time <laughs> for that. Sure. For me, I would say like you, you brought up, where do I fall in? I mean, I love to work on the game because I want to be better. I also love to just go out and play. I don't need a match. I enjoy just the competition against myself and trying to play the best that I can play. And then like tomorrow, we'll probably play a two-on-two best ball. And those are some of the most fun days. But to me, all the aspects of getting better, kind of pushing yourself, and then competing against the other guys, I, I love every part of golf. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a, a good mix of like the mastery along with the achievement orientation that I was expecting to hear right there. You mentioned your work with John Tillery, and, and while there's never a good time for this to happen, I imagine you mean that the, quarantine. the quarantine to happen, <laughs> break. to have you know an extra month or so to where you've got a little longer runway to automate some of those changes, I'm sure has been an advantage. And I'd love to, if you'll indulge us, to dork out a little bit on those changes and refinements that you've made, if you can kind of share what you've been working on in as much detail as you want, just to let you know that the audience for this podcast is a pretty sophisticated golfer. So they'll understand a lot of, if you want to go into any nuance, uh, I know they'll appreciate it. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about, this is kind of a, an odd time and you don't necessarily just want to be shut down. Um, there's obviously people out there without jobs, being laid off, furloughed. Um, we're, we're in a lucky position where we're pretty well off and you know, golf's not just going to go away, but to have this little bit of a mid-season, off-season, it's been a bit of a blessing. I know a lot of guys have enjoyed it. Obviously, all of us want to get out and play and compete, but with where I have been and working on things, um, you look at the start of this year and I've either got off to a bad start on Thursday, just not having things click, rebound, play well Friday. I've been lucky. I, I haven't necessarily had multiple bad rounds in a row. I've found ways through working on things. If I've struggled one day, it'll click the next. And obviously you want that to be to where it's clicking every single day. But with golfers, especially at a high level, you're always trying to get better. You're always working on things. And so sometimes you have to take a step back to, to take the two steps forward. So for me, I talked about sequencing a little bit earlier and really just noticed that 
things weren't really matching up properly. Lower body, uh, torso and arms. For me, my tendencies were to kind of keep turning throughout the backswing, continuous through the lower body, upper body, arms, putting me in a kind of a deep laid off position. And then being there to get the club back out in front of me, I basically have to pull with the hands or the arms to get that back out in front, which would then steepen the shaft. And then you've got the ball that could go either way from there. So really wanted to work on, after talking with Tillery, was get the shaft going more vertical up through the right shoulder and then the lower body really starting everything and driving everything from the ground up, which would then shallow the shaft. So instead of the shaft going from here and getting steep, it'd be here and then lay, start to lay down and get into the slot. Um, so it's a very different position going from there to there versus here to kind of pulling it back over. So a lot of it, you go back to the desert, which now is the American Express. I was doing some stuff with my feet. I called it the redneck shuffle. Um, <laughs> Tiller and kids are, are down there in Georgia, so it's, it's kind of how it came up. But a way for me to get into my right side and then shut the lower body off because I didn't want the hips to continue turning, which would then allow the upper body to kind of spin out and the arms to run deep. So ultimately wanted to post up into the right side and get the arms to go a little bit more vertically. And then in turn, once I got into the right side, get that move into the left and fire the lower body to then where I could post up on the left side. And then the torso um, could spin off of that and then club could pass and ultimately trying to get, I guess, a little quicker off the ball to shut it off, arms and the club go up and then all the speed be back at the bottom at the ball. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff we've been working on, trying to simplify as much as possible. And at the same time, getting as much info from JT and then me digest and find my own feels. Because as you guys know, you can tell someone one thing, but in a way players have to find, you know, it might be another feel to do the exact same thing. That's kind of been the bouncing back and forth. Like what do I need to think about to accomplish what we want? It's interesting the many directions we could go from there, but the one that I want to hit on first is the turning complex into simple. And I guess the question I have is where are you on that developmental continuum from uh, JT giving you an idea, that idea incubating in your own kind of feel matrix system to come up with a simple way to achieve the objective, whether that's in a complete continuous swing or whether that's in the regnet shuffle, or that drill or a series of drills and then ultimately you're turning off that conscious control and expecting that not for one round, but for a series of rounds that unconscious control is going to uh, going to come out. So through this period of time, I guess, how far along on this um, a cooking cycle are we? I, w I mean, I would still say I'm beginning stages. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, I mean, you're always working on stuff. It's never like, all right, everything's perfect. You're done. Go. You're always fine tuning. And I always tell people, you kind of look at it like a pendulum back and forth, like middle being perfect or good, but you work on things and it's always going back and forth. And the more you can keep it close to middle and not get too far away, that's what the best players in the world do on the physical side or the golf swing side. So for me, kind of just getting going. And I think the biggest thing is almost trial and error and him giving me feedback, but also me trying some stuff 
Like, does this look right? Or does this look good? Should we do something different? And like I was talking about finding my own feels and, and how to do that properly. So I feel like I've made a lot of improvement from where I was last fall, but there's still a long ways to go um, just with some of my habits. But my lower body's gotten significantly better, which has been nice to see. I've actually been playing quite nice the last few weeks. Um, JT and I had a Persimmon and Bellata match the other day, and things went well. I, I mean, I, only, I missed one fairway, so I was pretty happy about that. But it's been nice to you know, kind of have a, a little bit of a structure and know exactly what I'm working on, what I'm working towards. But it's it's not easy. I mean, if anyone plays golf at a, you know, somewhat of a level to a high level, just changing your grip a minor amount, it plays with your head, it plays with your feels. So it's been kind of a little bit of overcoming that. And at the same time, going from practice or playing at home to go into the one or two swing thoughts when it's time to play, and shut off everything else. Um, kind of put the the work at a standstill. To right now, we just need to go play golf. And then once we shut down that one or two or three tournaments in a row, or the days in between, once we get home, we can go back to what we're trying to work on. But that's where it's um, some of those days off have been maybe not having the right swing thought. Maybe it was a little off or timing was a little off. But you can't continue to work on swing stuff other than those those little cues at a tournament. Sure. You can't see our sign language between the both of us kind of crowding around my microphone, but when someone has something to say or a question to ask, they kind of nudge to the right or to the left, and we're go- we're both going back and we're forth arguing. rapidly <laughs> because we're, we're two coaches scratching our own itch and knowing yeah. that our audience love this type of conversation. We could continue to talk about these types of things, but Corey has a question. I'm not too I sure where like, it's going to go. I have like 20 questions. Yeah, exactly, me too. Right there. So... One, historically, what has been your relationship with Swing Thoughts? Because that's a conversation we always ask this question to every guest that comes on the podcast because there are some players that we come in contact, developing players, that expect that they're going to get to a point to where they can just play blank for the rest of their life. And and personally, I don't feel like that's attainable. I feel like there's a there's a certain percentage of your rounds where that will be the case. And then a lot of times it needs to be a thought, needs to be transferred into a feel. But we get some wonderful answers from players that are actually doing it. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on the percentage of rounds that you've played your entire life where there's been zero swing thoughts and you've been able to play completely blank. I mean, it really doesn't happen. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I I mean, even I mean, when people say they don't have a thought, they still do like I know over the time that you've, you've hit numerous balls to play a bunch of tournaments and you have the thoughts kind of in your head. You don't really know that they're there, but if you just sit up there and think like, okay, I'm going to hit a cut. You're already like going through like, okay, well, how do I hit a cut? Like you don't just cut the ball because you just hit it unless you just slice the ball naturally, but you're going to set up probably left and you're going to swing a little left and the face probably isn't going to be shut. And then you're going to do the opposite if you're going to draw the ball. It just some of it does come naturally, but you're already thinking like, I'm going to hit a cut or I'm going to hit a draw or I'm going to hit it low. It's nice when it does get to the point of I'm going to start it right here and hit a cut and it's going to finish there. I think that's as simple as it gets. But to me, I I think having one thought for whether it's from the start to the top of the swing and then kind of where does it go from there? There's been times when I've been when I've been driving it well, it's either trying to keep it smooth or consistent off the ball, not get 
too quick or too rushed. And then I'm just thinking about like, how do I hit the ball to the center of the face? I'm just trying to return it back to where I got it. And that's another thing. Like I've always been a really good putter. And some of the guys on the team last year at President's Cup, I made a, a good putt for par in my alternate shot match with Gary to have the match on 18. It was a tricky little left to rider down the slope. I obviously didn't have to worry about the putt coming back because it was to have the match. It was it was do or die. And so what were you thinking? And I said, well, I had my I had my spot picked out. I had my speed. I knew how hard I wanted to hit it. All I wanted to do was take the putter back and return it in the same exact spot and hit, you know, just get the putter back square and hit it out of the center of the face. So that's, I think, as simple as things get, but there's always a thought or something. But to get to that simple point, right? Exactly. We're going to go back to putting because, again, so curious about the things that world-class players do to develop that type of skill and then to be able to develop to the extent that you can simplify it to the type of um, descriptive feel that you just created. But a common starting point that we have is an origin story. So uh, for the purpose of understanding more about how you became great through your junior years, I want to understand how you started in golf. I read age three or age four, you got started. Can you tell a bit of a bit of a story and you can be as elaborate or as brief as you want? My grandpa from my mom's side, he wanted to kind of learn about golf, start playing. So he was the one that really got it, got the juices flowing. Um, he took me to the driving range as he was starting to kind of pick up golf himself. Um, I can't remember. I was two or three uh, when I first hit a ball. And that's really just how it started. He took me to the driving range a few times. Um, I fell in love with it. So myself, my grandpa, and then my dad, we kind of all started playing around the same time. And that all just started from him taking me to the range and growing up from, you know, two, three, four, five would go at least once a week. I know when I was in like preschool and kindergarten, my grandpa would pick me up every Wednesday and we'd either go to the driving range, play golf or go fishing. Two things I still love to do today. That was really how it got going. And then I was I actually started playing tournaments at four and a half. So I got, I got going pretty quickly. How frequently would you play tournaments through age four through, let's say, eight or nine? And then how did that change when you were later into your, I guess, into your teenage years? For me, I didn't play out of my state until I was 12. You know, I think junior golf is, I mean, it's definitely developed so much now and there's so many opportunities, but I felt like I was in a really good spot, kind of the time that I grew up where there were opportunities across the country, but it was a little bit more you play locally and then kind of go from there. So played Valley Junior Golf, which was my current caddy and only caddy, Joe Scovran. His parents were and still are the ones that run Valley Junior Golf. So that's, I've known Joe, my caddy, since I was three years old and his parents have been around me forever, but started playing Valley Junior Golf, which it starts at five years old. My mom had to go and Talk to Val, Joe's mom, multiple times. <laughs> Basically, like he just wants to play, and I, <laughs> we need a place for him to go play. At that point, I think five to seven age group was it was six holes. You play from the 150 yard marker, and I've been told that after every shot, I'd I'd run to the next and then hit and then go run to the next. I just I just wanted to play and go hit balls. That's where I got started. Um, started playing a little bit more in the the region of Southern California. And like I said, I didn't play out of the state until I was 12. I played my first AJGA event at 15. So I think the biggest thing is like not really stepping out of that circle until you're ready. 
I had a good buddy of mine. We played junior golf against each other. I'd say juniors, like junior, junior. We're in the five to seven age group. And I couldn't beat him. Who was that? Jeremiah Wooding. He was really good. Uh, him and his brother, uh, Josh, both played. That was something that I just always finished second or third behind him. And uh, I can't remember what age I was. I finally beat him. But it was like my stamp of approval to be able to kind of like move forward. I think that's that's kind of my thing that I tell people is like, don't make the next step until you're ready. And I think some people or parents or golfers in general try and go to the next or even beyond the next before they've even passed level one, two or three. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Let me toss a quote at you and not to get philosophical, but to start on a philosophical place and then follow that up with a question. And it's from Aristotle that excellence is never an accident. It's always the result of high intention, sincere effort and intelligent execution. It represents the wise choice of many alternatives. Choice, not chance, determines your destiny. Now, because you were so good at a young age, I think people make the mistake of assuming that all that was natural talent, your natural talent, and they fail to appreciate, even as a youth player, the sacrifice and hard work that has gone along with it. So yes, you're intelligent, gifted, but the success has always and also been the result of a series of hard choices and sacrifices. Can you speak to those sacrifices as a youth athlete with possible aspirations? I'm assuming here that you wanted to play at the highest level, perhaps? For me, it didn't really seem like sacrifices at the time because golf is what I love to do. It was what I wanted to do. My parents never had to tell me to go practice or ask if I wanted to go play. Uh, my mom would drop me off the driving range after school every day, pick me up at dark. So it was just what I wanted to do. But when you look back, like, yeah, there's there's other sports that I didn't play that I could have, but I didn't want to. The only other thing I really did besides playing golf growing up was riding and racing dirt bikes, which then when I later on down the road when I was 15, I I broke my foot in three places. And that was where I decided to really hang up riding. So whether that's a sacrifice or not, it was, you know, I was golf was number one. It's what I wanted to do. So everything that made golf possible or made it better for me in the long run, I was willing to make the choices to go towards golf. But like I said, for me, they didn't seem like sacrifices or feel like sacrifices. And if it's something that you truly want to do, it shouldn't necessarily be a sacrifice or be classified in that sense. You may have answered this a little bit, but I I was, Cameron and I both, as we were researching this a little bit, we were looking at who you were playing against in junior golf and who the the AJGA first boys team and second boys team were in that period of time. And as we're pretty connected, we we recognize a lot of those names and many of them have gone on through success. And But a lot of them we were like, man, that kid was an absolute world beater and I wonder what they're doing now. And it reminds me, we, we started this whole podcast because we read this paper called Super Champs and Almost. And it was a, a researcher went back and went through an Olympic class of, of Olympians who had become super champs and interviewed them. And then they interviewed all these people that they had trained with that 
had demonstrated very similar levels of potential and ability, but they never quite made it. And so that's one of the things that we want to do in these conversations. And I'd be really curious, especially as we look at the the talent that was in that class that you were competing against as an older junior of what you feel like were the differentiators maybe for you and then for the others in your class that kind of separated from what became super champions from the kids who just were almost there. There's a lot of different factors you could look at, not saying any of them are the reason or not the reason. And yeah, there's a lot of great junior players that I played against that either kind of never really tried much, gave it a run, it didn't work out. To me, I mean, sometimes having too much success early can be a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing to build the confidence down the road. But sometimes you talk about people, you know, like peaking too early and then it's it's kind of hard to stay on that trend or only knowing success and then coming to maybe the next stage or next level and you're not having the same success as you were before. Um, and that can be a setback if you've never experienced that before. And then once you get past kind of college to professional, you know, for me, we have, I mean, there's a lot of guys that play different tours that live down here in South Florida to many tours. And when I go play with the other guys, it's not like, you know, just because you play a different tour, they're getting shots or anything. You're, you're playing pro, you're, you're playing at the same level. Like, and there's some guys that I'd rather be getting shots from them just because they, they play some of these courses down here type of thing. <laughs> but it's when you play well and how you do it, it's, you know, being able to kind of rise to the occasion. And I feel like there's a lot of guys that struggle when it comes to kind of that, that time that you need to get it done, whether it's you look at like a U.S. junior qualifier, U.S. amateur qualifier, U.S. open qualifier, and then you go to Q school, which becomes a little bit of a bigger stage. And I, I've seen plenty of people that have that I've played with are great players, swing it well, hit it great on the range, go play, have great matches against each other or with other guys that are of equal ability or maybe they're even better than those guys and then they get to some sort of qualifier and they forget how to play golf. <laughs> like you just got 64 playing at home, which, which I mean thing, right? some people don't realize as well. Like, yeah, great, you shot 64 at your home course, but go shoot 64 in a tournament. It's a lot different. But it is it is really crazy and I don't think there's necessarily a you can't pinpoint it exactly on why, but there's people that can execute when it's time to execute and then others that just struggle with it. So there's two things that I think we can go to there. I'm going to go to the second one, but the first one is clutching up, meaning big time players make big time plays in big time situations. And as you just mentioned, that that's a hard one to pinpoint. But the other side of that, something that you mentioned very early is what happens when you're faced with either that first adversity or this continuing period of adversity, how you react and overcome that. And I recall on a number of occasions, but one that specifically stands out in my mind is your press conference after winning Waste, Man Waste Management in 2019. And it was colored with such responsible perspective about framing what you do as smaller than life itself. You know, you're a golfer, but what you do as a person is so much bigger than that. And I would frame that more as a life ethos. Can you speak to how that life ethos that probably came from your parents 
helps you deal with just the normal ebbs and flows that come with playing a bad round of golf, playing a bad tournament, or playing consecutively poor tournaments that might then inform those people out there that are in a difficult period of time how to um, uh, recover and, and, and find their best performing self. I think there's people that look at it similar to me, and then there's people that look at it very differently, and there's success that's been had on either side. But for me, I've always been someone brought up and taught, you know, looking at the glass half full. And for me, realizing that life is a lot bigger than golf, it's amazing that we get to play it, but I'm not necessarily going to live and die by golf and what happens and how I finish, especially when you look at what's going on right now. Like it's our country shut down for the most part. I mean, who cares about golf right now? Luckily, we're going to be able to go play and we still can. We're going to have a match soon. But there's a lot of things that are a lot bigger than golf. So that's, I mean, one of the ways looking at things and, you know, I've had a number of people, you know, affected from, you know, not being able to play golf to you know, someone that I think about a lot is Jared Lyle to another kid, Griffin Connell, who was a fan of mine that lived out in Scottsdale and, and passed away a couple of years ago. Um, those are two people that I think about a lot especially in, you know, either tough situations on the golf course or maybe you're just having a bad day. Like it could be a lot worse. And Jared would be out there saying some expletives like cheer the, you know, what up, man. <laughs> I knew that. Yep. I know him well. <laughs> Is that explicit self-talk that's happening? Because you, you just mentioned a couple really powerful psychology skills where you're reframing optimism and perspective basically is what you just just listed there is that a conscious thought that's going on in your head if you're in the middle of a round where either it's not going your way or you're in a situation where you've got some pressure and you need to kind of as Cameron said clutch up yeah i mean i think the the clutch up or pressure situations i mean always thinking back to jared or or griffin or you know, other situations or other people can always help because it kind of lightens the mood a little bit and puts things into perspective. And then also trying to replay some past memories in your head of either a similar shot or pot or whatever it may be or similar situations to, you know, kind of give you that boost of confidence or, or positive outlook moving forward. So, yeah, those are those are two areas that I, I touched on when needed, sometimes not needed. You just think about it brings a smile to your face like you said jared would be telling you some interesting things if he was there standing next <laughs> to you so they usually put you in a good spot you mentioned rise to the occasion and those clutch up moments where there's some pressure and it does i mean if you've followed golf for the last decade it's easy to know that your major record is really good but in looking at it, researching it a little bit more closely as we got ready to chat, I mean, it, it's mind-blowing what you've done in the majors in the past, say, six years since 2014 or so. And so an easy like answer is, co as Cameron said, two coaches trying to figure out what's the answer to that. An easy answer is, well, yeah, he's really good. That's why he plays well in the majors. But there's a lot of really good players that don't have that level of consistency in the biggest events on this variety of major championship venues. And so I want to think that there's something different about your prep Monday through Wednesday that sets you apart or, and, and maybe, and, or there's something different about your, your tactics and your decision-making at those really difficult big moments that has 
led you to being in contention so often? It's been a lot of fun, obviously, and I feel I've had a lot of success in majors, but unfortunately, sometimes the media to outside fans, they only look for wins. So I've kind of been thrown under the bus quite a bit as far as why haven't you won yet? Which unfairly, I mean, I would have loved to have had a win by now and I would have loved to have won more on tour. But with you guys talking about the consistency that I've had and I've been there so many times, it speaks to the level of of golf that's being played out there and how many guys are in contention and when it comes to Sunday, how many guys have a chance to win. So not saying that you have to get lucky, but sometimes it comes down to, you know, obviously getting the right breaks, a ball curling in the edge, catching top edge or bottom edge at some point, getting a little bounce that's good versus bad. And you may not think about those at the at the time, but you think back and a lot of times you only remember the bad ones. But that's what it comes down to. And sometimes it could be a, a bouncer putt on Saturday that just kind of keeps that momentum going. So, yeah, like I said, I know I've had the consistent success in the majors. Would have liked to have been in contention more. But looking back and looking at finishes and where I've been, it's I put myself in a lot of good spots. Yeah, go check your wiki page. It's, <laughs> go, going through the highlights and top tens, it's like, holy shit, there's a lot of yellow highlighted numbers here. And and if you look at the, they've got the WGCs on there as well. It's the same thing. But do you feel like you prep differently for those big ones? And I don't mean you personally prepping different for the majors than the regular tour events, but do you think there's anything different about your prep relative to the majority of the field that you're playing against that gives you an advantage over others? I don't think so. Personally, I I think that... At least not no, not that he's willing to tell us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he and Joe know it. We don't. <laughs> well, I know, I know when it comes to the British Open, we have, the last couple of years, we had six guys staying together. So I know exactly what everyone else is doing. Yeah, right. I think we're, exactly. we're kind of on the same page. <laughs> um, for me, I think the biggest thing that I've tried to focus on normal tournaments and then especially majors is just making sure I'm rested come Thursday. Some of the majors are tough because they're not necessarily tournaments that are courses that you've seen a lot, if at all. And so some more prep, I guess sometimes when you get to a course that you haven't seen a whole lot, people think they need to go play it a bunch versus just making sure that your game is ready. And so I look at to earlier this year back at American Express in the desert. I hadn't played out there in quite a while. I think I'd played the stadium course once. I don't I didn't remember it going up to it. And the Nicholas course I'd never played. I'd played La Quinta maybe a couple times. So the week before I drove around La Quinta, I hit a couple T balls. I drove around Nicholas and hit a couple T balls as well. And then I played Stadium. And that was the only one I played leading up to the tournament because I was staying at Madison, playing and practicing over there, working on the game. Well, the two darn courses I played the best at were La Quinta and Nicholas. But you didn't and see <laughs> didn't play well on stadium. So what's that tell you? Go figure Does it, out. It, it does help to go see a course and play it, but also there's other ways to do it. You don't necessarily have to go play it. You can drive around, maybe hit some shots if you're in a time crunch and just get a visual and a feel for it. The greens were better at La Quinta and Nicholas, so I made more putts there, but still no excuse, hit it closer. So a big part of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for me with some sponsor obligations here and there is just make sure the game's ready, but also that you're rested. So don't overplay, just get the, stay efficient, get the basics done that you need to on the golf course. And some of that comes in 
you know, the weeks leading up so that you're not trying to cram Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And that was something I had, I had told Matt Wolf a little bit when he first started coming out was uh, his first event. He was still an amateur was, was back in Phoenix, uh, the waste management Phoenix open. And I just said, just rest up, just be ready. Don't overwork yourself. Cause I, I remember early on, there's times where you may do a little too much and come Saturday and Sunday where you're supposed to be peaking and ready to go, you can start to fatigue if you kind of overwork or do too much early. I want to touch on something that we talked about earlier, and that is big time players, big time plays and big time moments. And the uh, phrase that I toss out at you is life shrinks or, or expands in proportions to someone's courage. And so the place that I want to go is twofold. First, uh, we're big fans of cross training or um, kind of canvassing experiences and pulling from those experiences as it pertains to whatever you're doing in life. And you spent a portion of your youth uh, riding dirt bikes. And with that comes a whole lot more risk than playing golf. And with that risk invites you to go to a place that summons courage. Number one, do you think that helps you at all? And number two, if it doesn't help you, or even if it does help you in situation like the Players' Championship, when the rest of the world is thinking water, you're not seeing water on 17 or 18 or 16. You're only seeing green, and you clutch up and hit the shots that you hit down the stretch in the final six holes and in the playoff holes to win that tournament. Is there something or some place or some dialogue that goes through your head that allows you to rise to the occasion? For me, I I definitely think that riding and and growing up doing that helped me. It's much more of a a reactive sport. You you don't have time to think. And if you do think, you're going to wake up a little while later, maybe in the hospital (laughs) or something along those lines. So you have to, over the course of the time that you've ridden and, you know, on tracks, jumping, doing whatever it is, you kind of just react and mentally without having those swing thoughts, you know what to do. You're not going up to a jump thinking, okay, I need to do this. And then I need to do that a little more gas. I'm going to seat bounce this. There's a bunch of other lingo we can go into, but you're not thinking of it. You're just, you're doing it because you already know. So it's like, all right, I'm going to go up. I'm going to hit a cut here because all the stuff's already kind of ingrained in there. So for me, I think it made me a a lot quicker of a, a decision maker and try not to worry or think about the consequence as much. Because in, in golf, I mean, if you hit it in the water, you hit it OB, like you just grab another ball and you hit one. <laughs> if you hit a ball. dusted yourself off. And, yeah, yeah if, if you're on a bike and you, in terms, hit it in the water or hit it OB, you don't just go grab another ball. Right. So, yeah, the consequences are a little different. Is that the same way that you are with your putting? Because your putting looks to be very intuitive, instinctual, uh, like what you're describing there, where other successful putters can be pretty structured in their approach, whether you know they're aim pointing or they've got a really structured way that they're uh, trying to either read putts or uh, execute their form. And you know, when, whenever coaches see someone being really successful like you are with your putting in a way that is a little bit unique and different as far as your form. I'm always curious into like where your head is as far as what you're monitoring in your putting and also how you're continuing to maintain that, like the form piece of that, your technique. I'd love to hear details on on what you're doing on the putting green when you're going to get to work. Yeah, it's to me why I've kind of always been a good putter and continue to be a good putter is I've made it my own. 
putting is the easiest thing to be good at. It's the shortest stroke. You don't have to hit it very hard. You're not making a full swing. And other than having a bad green, I mean, it's pretty simple. But a lot of it has learned over time, obviously getting the feeling through your feet, the vision through your eyes and how a green works. That's one thing. But to stand up over a ball and all you have to do is start it where you're looking it's it's as simple as it gets in golf. So for me, like I said, making it my own and and there's no perfect way to putt. It's been interesting over I'd say the last 15 years. I spent a lot of time through high school and college down at Scotty Cameron Studio with Paul and Scotty as well and Hank and Margaret. It, it's just a fun place to go hang out, but Paul and I spent a lot of time watching video, looking at different strokes me trying different things to see what they did or like we talked about with feels in the swing and that's ultimately how i came with hovering the putter when i sold the putter and everyone that sold the putter it has to go somewhere it can't just go straight back unless you pick it up a little bit if the putter is resting on the ground it does not go straight back and so that was something for me i i found when i sold the putter it had to be a little bit of a pickup and the putter went just outside and i wanted to clean that up so i said well why don't i hover one and see what it does and damn well, it went straight back <laughs> beautiful <laughs> like all right we fixed that uh, but that's that's how it it went spending time with paul down there it's just little things like i said kind of trial and error uh, if i do this what does it do or how do i fix that and then following that, checkups would just be, all right, how, where where are you off? What are you doing differently? One of my tendencies um, is, is through the stroke, my head starts to move a, a touch back, if anything. I mean, we're talking, we're getting into millimeters um, when we're breaking things down. And that was something that just allowed me to really own my stroke and know exactly what I'm doing and what causes what. And you're, you're not always going to putt well. There's going to be days where you're a little you know, off on speed or not seeing line properly. And there's, there's a lot of stuff we could go into putting. I posted uh, one thing a couple weeks ago on Instagram, just giving a little insight, but just talking about stroke and to reading greens. People see me, they think I'm plumb bobbing. No, I, I don't plumb bob. I'm, I'm using the putter shaft to kind of, it's something I created or taught myself to do of I'm using it to where I see the ball going into the hole and I swing the putter a little bit to then create like a high point. And then I'm visually seeing where I see the ball rolling from the hole, looking back to my ball. So that's something that I can't just go tell someone, this is what you do. And that, that'll tell you where to hit it. I've just kind of created that on my own over years to give me feedback and kind of going through my routine. So from a time or a rep standpoint, if you had to say this is the quantity, either time or reps, how much time do you invest these days in maintaining that elite level skill? Today I hit, I think like 10 putts on the mirror and that was prior to going out and playing. Um, yeah, and it looked good. So I left. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's the thing. Um, you know, if you're hitting it good on the range, don't sit there. You're going to figure something out that's wrong and you're going to have to work on that. So it, it's not a set time. And for me, looking at working on things outside of if you're working on the swing or something particular, I'm someone that's a big believer in go play. And if there's a shot you struggle with out there, then go work on that. Don't go to the range searching for something. And if something's good, you know, you know, you're in a good spot. We talked about like kind of the, the pendulum back and forth. 
if you're here, stay there and don't let it get too far off. And then, you know, same thing on, on putting, I'm checking just, you know, basic fundamentals. I've obviously put a lot of work in to get where I'm at, but if I'm on the putting green and I'm starting putts where I want, hitting them out of the center, good speed, and I'm seeing it where I should, then there's no reason to to sit there. It'd be a little different if it was before a tournament round. I always hit, you know, 10 to 20 balls on the, on the mirror before I go to the range. And then after the range, I'll do a few speed putts to make sure I'm, I'm checked in on the speed uh, before I go tee it up. And, you know, that may be the only time where I make sure that things are dialed in is more on a, a speed kind of sense. Because if your speed's off, I don't care where you're looking or hitting it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, for sure. We spoke with Adam Scott just a few days back, and he said, you know, when you've got it on go, it's on go. And you're uh, you're making 20, 25 birdies in a four-round event uh, just to get yourself into a place where you can consider that I'm in contention and I might win. So the question that comes is when you warm up and you have it on go, how much you in Harvey Penick's language taking dead aim – uh, versus when you don't quite have it and you're going out to the round of golf with maybe B minus or uh, potentially C, what adjustment are you making tactically? Trying to go back to those swing thoughts, find one that's going to either eliminate one side, find a way that you can just get it around and score and just go play golf. You can't necessarily work out, work on it while you're out there. So how am I going to get it around in the least amount of shots possible? And um, I think that's something I've gotten a lot better at over the, you know, maybe the second half of my career. So not necessarily having, you know, a day that really set me back, maybe like I've had in the early parts of my career. And I think that comes more from the the mental side of things, because it's, as you guys know, to have four days where you hit it pretty good to really good it really doesn't happen a whole lot there's it seems like there's always going to be that one day that's just a little off and as you guys know on on golf courses that are set up properly um, like most tour events as long as it's not too soft they pick you apart pretty quickly if you're not you know on your game and so how you manage and get through those days instead of shooting 75 shooting you know 69 to 71 is pretty significant especially if it's a saturday and you're either in or out of the golf tournament. Yeah. And then when you're on go, I think is making sure you don't get too overconfident, sticking to your game plan, maybe not necessarily going full attack. I feel like that can backfire at times, but tighten your lines up, but still staying smart out there and let the letting the round come to you instead of just going a uh, full hundred percent. And then all of a sudden you just come up a yard short, short-sighted. <laughs> So that was a strategy at Hero in the final round when you shot 61, seven birdies in the first seven holes? The first seven allow for seven birdies. <laughs> <laughs> it depends who you are, not with my skill. <laughs> no, um, yeah, and, and there was nothing there that final round. Nothing was crazy. There was either one or two putts that were from, you know, outside, you know, 20, 15, 20 feet. Other than that, I, I hit it and just executed, hit the fairways, you know, hit a couple wedges close. There's two par fives in there. It was just one of those days where you actually, as you envision it from the tee, you hit it in the fairway and then you hit it to eight or 10 feet and you make the putt versus the other days where you hit it to 10 feet and you miss it. And then you go to the next hole and then you hit it, you know, maybe short side in a bunker and you make bogey the day you make it, then you go and hit it to another 10 feet and you make it on the next hole. And so momentum, yeah, the momentum's huge. I mean, one shot 
as I mean, people say like, oh, don't let that shot affect you. It, it's sometimes hard to, I don't know if you can even quantify or kind of put it into terms what a ball lipping out versus lipping in does. It's a thin line for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think every answer that you give us in our minds creates like 20 more questions that we want to Searching dig in more. more. But, <laughs> but we're, we are going to demonstrate some restraint here and be, <laughs> no. be respectful of your time. We want to finish. We, we, I mean, we can do round two. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> we're we're going to save some of them. I, I want to finish with a few of our, our quick hits. And one of those, because you mentioned strategy there, what's the worst strategy mistake that you see players make, even on the PGA Tour, the best players in the world, where you see a player hit a shot that's like, man, what what are, you, what are you doing right there? And and all the wisdom and experience that you have says that that's not a very good idea. To me, it's when guys are maybe outside of their comfort zone when they can control that. You know, instead of, I guess, in a way, kind of hard to explain. Um, but if you're going back and forth on a on a club and just hit the one that you're going to make a better swing with, and for the most part, when you're in between clubs, now obviously if there's trouble in play, if it's you know, if you're trying to hit front of the green versus middle of the green and trying to get like too cute in certain situations, that's my, I mean, for me, as well as I feel like other players is like always going with the one that's going to create the best swing. And at the time you may not know that, but looking back, you can kind of pick and choose, well, maybe I shouldn't have tried to fit this little cut in there. Like just hit a darn straight ball or draw it right there. It's fine. Like you're not going to make bogey from the middle of the green you're going to two putt over there so which comes down to sticking to the game plan or whatever you have set forth for that day um golf's a weird game favorite event to play in and why it could be a Ryder cup it could be a team event as well i mean team events are are awesome just because you get guys on both sides but i mean especially the the team that you're on you know you're rooting for each other that week not that i'm not rooting for for Jordan or JT in, in weeks that we're playing, but I want to beat their asses. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> but a team a team we want you to as well. <laughs> yeah, a team event, you're you're all there together. They're special, but those weeks are going to be some of the most memorable memorable weeks to look back on. You know, later on in life and even now. But my favorite event, just on tour, is I mean, you guys could probably guess it, but. Phoenix Open. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Good memories. It kind of kind of stands on its own as as a a different tournament, and the Thunderbirds have been awesome to me. They gave me a spot as an amateur, um, so I've as a tour event goes, that's the the one I've played the most. It's a special one. Love it. Back to the team events. Uh, hypothetical for you that can never happen, but curious to your answer. If you had to team up with a European player. Who would be your first pick to say, I really, I would go to war with this guy right here? I would take a lot of those guys, but um, first pick, cliche, number one in the world, Rory. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, Stenson, Sergio, there's there's a lot of good guys over there. I'm, as you guys probably know, I get along with pretty much everyone, so I have a lot of great relationships out there. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip it on you then. Okay. You've got to play a, an American in singles. This is the new hypothetical. Who's your pick? Who do you say, Captain? Give me this guy in singles. I don't really want JT because <laughs> he knows too much. Uh, with, with a left-handed, yeah, yeah he's got too much crap on you. Let's see. Maybe playing him left-handed or playing with Persimmon. Persimmon, I got him. <laughs> <laughs> well, as of right now, he hasn't played with it much. He's only going to get better. So I had to strike while the iron was hot. 
I mean, I, I'd love to go back and I've had a couple couple times playing against Tiger, but I'd love to have head to head. And we we play a plenty of matches here at home, but like a, a Tiger on Sunday is different than you know Tiger at home. Yeah, and no we have a blast here. And that by no means am I calling them out because that's there's a, a few people in sports that you you don't call out and make mad. Um, <laughs> Stephen Ames learned that. that. <laughs> yep. Um, you know another one. I don't know if you guys are watching Last Dance at all, but sure. you don't want to make you don't want to call out Michael Jordan. That's another <laughs> one we play with down here, and uh, you don't want to fuel the fire with those two. Right on, right on. Rick, can't thank you enough for the time you spent with us. We can't wait uh, for May seventeenth and the event. We'll be cheering hard for you, and look forward to next time we cross paths and. Can't wait for round two. Yeah, you promised yeah. round two. You got it. <laughs> All right, brother. Cheers, Thanks mate. a lot, man. See you. Great night. All right. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.